Well, good morning. It's been such a delight and pleasure to be with you, and what an encouragement to me. Uh, what a joy to see uh, so many gathered, uh, both at the conference and here for the Word of God. And uh, thank you for praying for uh, Diane and me and for our church and for our seminary. Yeah, we need, we need, we need your prayers, and we're, I'm so, I'm so uh, appreciative of it. What a, what a joy to see Blake again, and after uh, a while, and to see how the Lord's just used him and this church in such uh, encouraging ways. Well, we're looking at Revelation chapter 5 today, the passage um, we've already read. I mean, if, you, if we look at the context here, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are a throne room vision. In chapter 4, we have a vision of God in his throne room as creator. And in this chapter, we see a vision of Christ as, as redeemer. Yeah, before, before we dive into this text, I think this text, what does it give us? This, this text gives us hope, right? That uh, Christ is the redeemer. There's hope for human beings. And I want to tell you the story of how the risen Christ still changes lives today. He, he brings life, as we talked about in Sunday school, to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. I want to tell you a story today about Richard Morgan. Richard Morgan was converted when he was 62 years old. That was in 2008. Often when people are old, we give up on them. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the great 1700s preacher, he, he remarked during the revival, he said, this is a really unusual time of revival because he said, even old people are getting saved. <laughs> even old people are getting saved. So, you know, that was unusual in Edwards' day as well. Anyway, when Richard Morgan was young, he was a Mormon, and then... He became an atheist. He was convinced by the writings of the famous atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins. Probably many of you know that name. <clears throat> well, and he, he became involved as an atheist in a discussion forum online. These are very common about evolution and about Dawkins' work. But a Scottish pastor entered into the forum discussion named David Robertson. Uh, this David Robertson had written a book critical of Dawkins about Dawkins' view, and, and he began responding on the forum to people. And uh, you can imagine, you know, most of these people inhabiting this forum, they weren't Christians, right? They were going after, including Richard Morgan, they were going after David Robertson you know, these online discussions can be pretty fierce if you're acquainted with these things. But, you know, the attacks on, on David Robertson were intense and fierce. And, and Richard Morgan, even though he disagreed with Pastor Robertson, he, uh, he, it bothered him. It bothered him how people were saying such hateful things. And, and so Richard Morgan, he reproved his fellow atheists, like, hey, we're being, we're being too mean 
to this pastor. You know, he's wrong, he's crazy, but we shouldn't be so mean mean to him. When he did that, you can imagine, you know how these online discussions work, then they attacked him. <laughs> they turned on Richard Morgan and started attacking him pretty fiercely. So then he started corresponding with the pastor. And Pastor Robinson, this, this, this is what he said. I, isn't this remarkable? He said, Pastor Robertson said to Richard Morgan, what, what, what could make you believe in God? That, that's all he said. That, that, that's not an incredibly profound question, is it? What could make you believe in God? But here's what happened next. These are in Richard Morgan's own words. 62 years old. In that instant, in that very, very instant, some words came into my mind, which I must have learned 40 years ago. We love because he first loved us. In an instant, my perception of just about everything changed. It was as if I was seeing precisely the same things as I was seeing before, but whereas before everything had been a two-dimensional image in black and white, suddenly it sprang into a three-dimensional image full of color. I mean, in that instant, I understood the expression, amazing grace. I was absolutely Amazed. That was at 10.24 in the morning on the 12th of April, 2008. I remember looking at my watch because I was thinking, you know, if I'm having a nervous breakdown, it might be useful to know what time it started to happen to me. So, <laughs> and I could not understand what was happening. I could not understand. I was certain without having any rational explanation for it, that God existed, that he, that he loved me without waiting for me to love him, that he loved me unconditionally without waiting for me to deserve it or to be worthy of it in any way. And at one level, that made complete sense because I know that as human beings, we cannot give what we have not received, and we cannot give love unless we have received love. You know, I love that story, and I think it fits with this passage because Christ is still changing lives today, right? And, and we ought not to give up hope about anyone, and you ought not to give up hope about your own life. God can change people. It doesn't always happen dramatically, right? It doesn't always happen in a second. It may be a slow thing, but he's still changing lives today, and I think we see that so powerfully in this passage. So let's dive into the passage. The first truth I see in this passage is apart from Christ, apart from Christ, there is, there is no hope. Let's, let's look at this again. So it begins in verse 1. We see God, God's on his throne. That's a major theme in Revelation, right? God's on his throne. In his, in his right hand is a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. So it's really firmly bound up with these seals, right? I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So that's, that's the question, right? Who is worthy? That's the fundamental question. And the author wants us to consider the answer to that question. Who is worthy? And what's the answer in verse 3? But no one 
No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. In other words, no one's worthy. No, no angel was worthy. No one in heaven, right? No one in heaven is worthy. Even though angels, good angels, haven't sinned, they're not worthy to open that scroll. Because we're, we're going to see, right, without, without this scroll opening, there's no hope for human beings. Right? We're in the middle of the story. Human beings are sinners. An angel, as good as they are, angels can't redeem us. We need a human being to redeem us, right? And an angel can't do it. Angels, angels aren't human. And, and, and we're actually going to see, we not, not only do we need a human being to do it, we need, we need God himself to do it. So angels, angels can't do it. They're not worthy to do it. Uh, clearly, no one under the earth, the dead or, 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 or demons, they, they, they can't do it. No, no human being can open this scroll because, because we're sinners, right? Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. There's no human being of all the human beings who have ever lived there was no human being who could open the scroll. Why not? Because we have to go back to Revelation chapter 4. Remember, that's that vision of God in his throne room. And uh, I'm not going to read that passage, but what we see in that passage, what's happening in the throne room in Revelation chapter 4, there's a massive thunderstorm going on, right? Now, I think this is symbolic language. But, it's, but what's the point? There's a massive thunderstorm going on in that throne room. In other words, it's absolutely terrifying in that room. It's absolutely terrifying. What's, what's the evidence of that? What are, the, what are the four living beings saying, right? Which I think are angelic creatures. They're saying, holy, holy holy, right? God, it is terrifying because of God's terrifying holiness. And it is terrifying because who's worthy to stand before the Holy One? So no human being, no human being can open the scroll because human beings, yeah, they're creatures, but they're also sinners. They can't stand before the Holy One and so John, right, we see in verse 4, he wept. And he wept. John the one, John the apostle, seeing this vision. I wept and wept. Why? Because, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. So why, if this scroll isn't opened, right, there's no hope. There's no hope. For the human race, there's no, there's no meaning in life, finally, right? If there's no hope in life, right, there's no, there's no meaning. Life is just a sound and fury signifying nothing. You know, do we, you know, if you're, you know, we're talking about Richard Dawkins, you know, do we come into the world by chance? Do we live by chance and we die by chance? And if that's so, you know, if you believe in that, then love is an illusion, right? 
because any love you have is a result of, of chance. Do we live for a short while and then just return to the dust? Well, of course, the Bible doesn't say that, does it? The Bible actually says our lives are very meaningful because, because at the end of the day, we're responsible before God, right? So, you know, that's what a lot of secular people say, but Scripture doesn't say if, there, if no one is worthy, Scripture doesn't say then life is just meaningless. Actually, it says something even scarier, right? It says there'll be judgment. There'll be wrath. There, there, there's, there's hell. So, so that's why John weeps and weeps because John understands. John understands in this vision what it all means for the human race and what it means for him. Because if no one is worthy, there's no hope for the human race. The only hope is for judgment. Do you have, do you have hope in your life? I'm, you know, I want to say here, I'm not talking about the feeling of hope. You know, many unbelievers have a feeling of hope. You know, they're optimistic, right? I'm talking about an objective. First, feelings of hope are, can be fine, but I'm talking about an objective hope, right? Not just subjective hope. Not just feelings of hope. You know, as a believer, you may not feel hope. You may feel kind of hopeless today, but objectively, actually, you, ho you have hope. There's hope because Christ is your Savior. You know, someone may have a terminal illness, but they may feel hope because they have a quack doctor. This happened to a friend of ours. This is years ago. Tragically, sadly, God was in control, but it was hard. She was dying of cancer. But, but she had a quack doctor. She was bleeding profusely at the end. Her doctor said, you know what? Your body's just cleansing itself. So she had hope, but her hope was bogus, right? In that case, her hope was bogus. She died. She died in that case. So it's just an illustration, right? You can have, an unbeliever may feel hope, but there's no objective hope. On the other hand, Sometimes as Christians, we may think, well, I don't really have hope because I don't feel hope. But our hope is first and foremost objective. It's based on what Christ has done. If Christ is ours, you have hope whether you feel it today or not. Don't live fundamentally based on your feelings. God can give us feelings, but he can take them away, right, as well. Let, let me use the doctor illustration again. Maybe you go to the doctor and you feel like, I'm dying. But actually, you're getting better. Your feelings are deceiving you. Subjectively, you have no hope. But objectively, you're getting better. Let's not think that hope is fundamentally about our feelings. We're so guided by our feelings. Feelings will follow at times, right? But let's, let's remember our hope is objective. Well, I've gotten a little ahead of ourselves in the story, right? Because we have hope. We have hope. Why? Because Christ is worthy. So John weeps and weeps. You know, John, John, uh, John emphasizes this story, right? So we'll see the significance of the answer. And here comes the answer. Here's the hope 
in verse 5. Who is worthy? No one is worthy. No angel, no human being, obviously no demon. But then one of the elders, verse 5, said to me, the elders, I think the elders are angels as well, but we won't get into that in detail. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep, John. And really for all of us, don't weep. Look, look, or as some of your versions say, behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, John, don't weep. There's someone who can open the seven scrolled bunch. And and who is it? He's he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the, who is he? He's the mighty king of the Old Testament. He's the promised one from the line of David. This fulfills Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. We see a prophecy of the Messiah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Who can open the seven-scrolled book? The one who's as strong and as noble as a lion. The one from the tribe of Judah. And he's also the root of David. He's the the promised Messiah. He fulfills that covenant with David. Do you remember that covenant? 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised that there would come one from the tribe of, uh, of Judah and the line of David who would be king forever and ever. And that person is Jesus the Messiah. As Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So who is worthy? The one that the ancient prophecies spoke about. The hope of history is in him, in this, in this mighty lion, in this root of David. So who conquers the one who's as glorious and as strong as, as a lion? But then a very strange thing happens in this passage. We see in verse 6 that when John looks... He doesn't see a lion, but a slaughtered lamb. Did you notice that? He's told, did did you notice this in verse 5? He's told about a lion. He said to me, look, the lion. Behold the lion. But, But when John looks, he's told about a lion. But when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees... A lamb. Now, is he a lion or a lamb? (laughs) He's both, right? He's the lion and the lamb. But it is very significant here that when he looks, he sees the lamb. And the lamb has been slaughtered, right? The lamb has been put to death. We can think of in the Old Testament the Passover lamb that was put to death, right? Passover lambs were slaughtered. So that Israel, would, uh, the firstborn, would be spared and they'd be lib- liberated from, 
from Egypt. We think of Old Testament sacrifices where lambs were slaughtered for the forgiveness of sins. And we think of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, where the servant of the Lord is as a lamb who was slaughtered. We think of John's gospel where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's the slaughtered lamb, but not only is he the slaughtered lamb, we got to be very, we have to read Revelation very carefully. Did you notice the lamb is slaughtered? That means he was put to death, but he's no longer dead because he's standing. He's standing. He's alive. He's a risen. He's a risen lamb. He's a slaughtered lamb who's alive now. Risen from the dead. He's conquered. He's worthy. But, but here, here's, I think, the most beautiful and lovely thing about this text. Does he conquer as a ferocious lion who attacks and destroys his enemies? No. No, here's the gospel, right? He conquers by being slain as a lamb. He wins. How does, how does God win? Shock and awe, right? Bombing his enemies, destroying his enemies. He wins by losing. He lives. He lives by dying. He triumphs through suffering. He conquers by becoming a victim. The, the victory over sin comes through one who dies in our place to take our sins upon us. So th- th- this, this is the Christian gospel, isn't it? And I want to say, if you're, if you're an unbeliever here today, your, your only hope, your only hope for life is if you put your trust and your hope in this slain lamb, because I promise you, based on the word of God, I promise you, you will weep and weep forever if you don't put your hope in this slain lamb. And, we, and I don't want that to happen to you, and, and, and your friends in this room don't want that to happen to you. Only he can wash away your sins. You can't do it. If you rely on your own works, if you rely on your own goodness, you're like a person trusting in a quack doctor. There's no hope for you that way. The only doctor who can heal you is this slain lamb. Put your trust in him. Second, for believers, remember this. Life comes in an unexpected way. You know, our lives have many setbacks and sufferings and pains. Maybe you're, you can think right now of difficult things you're going through in your life. What we long for in life, our aspirations, our dreams, they're often not realized. They're often shattered, and we, and we can go, be frustrated. But remember the cross, right? God, God wins the victory in a most unexpected way through suffering through adversity and pain. God God brought salvation that way, and that's how he's also going to work in your own life. He reminds us of our inadequacy, so we look to him for strength. He impresses upon us our weaknesses so so that we put our trust in him. 
So what's our only hope? It's the lamb who is a lion. It's the slain lamb. Next, we also see in this text that this, this risen and standing lamb, he sends forth his spirit. Let's look at verse 6 again. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. I think the four living creatures stand for those angelic beings. And I think those angelic beings, they're, if, if we looked at chapter 4, they're overseeing all of creation they're, uh, for God. And then and among the elders, there's the 24 elders. I think the elders represent the people of God. He had seven horns and seven eyes. What kind of these are these are not musical horns, right? These are these are horns like around animals, and the horns stand for strength. And and there and there's seven. And and seven is a symbolic number in Revelation. It stands for, for perfection. So so the lamb, the lamb has perfect strength. He's he's omnipotent, right? He has seven horns and he has seven eyes. Again, that number seven is symbolic. And the eyes stand for what? Omniscience. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent and omniscient. But, but then he says something interesting. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth? Like, what's going on there? And I think, you know, in apocalyptic literature, this is an apocalyptic book, where you have symbolism, he slides, yes, yes, Jesus, Jesus is, has this omnipotent strength, and he's omniscient, but it's also true of the Holy Spirit. So he slides from talking about the Father to the Spirit. He says, which are the seven spirits of God. Wait a minute, do you believe in seven Holy Spirits? That doesn't sound right. Yep, that's not right. That's not right. You're right. There's only one Holy Spirit. But remember what I just said. The number seven is symbolic. The numbers, there aren't seven Holy Spirits. This is talking about the Holy Spirit as perfect. But let me, let me give you another text to show, I think, more clearly, if you have doubts, that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 4 of Revelation. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. So I don't have time to get into this, but that's the Father. That's the Father. The one who is, he exists forever, who was eternally, and he is to come. Yes, he, yes the Bible can speak of the Father as the coming one as well. Yes, he comes in his Son. But this is talking about the Father, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So we have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. But right there in the middle, right? Grace and peace to you from the Father, the seven spirits that are before the throne, and from the Son. How do we know that's a reference to the Holy Spirit? Some people, some commentators even say that, that those refer to angels, but I don't think that's right at all. How do we know? Context is king. How do we know? First of all, that number seven is symbolic, right? Secondly, secondly, grace and peace. You already know the answer to this, right? Grace and peace 
only come from God. You never read in the Bible, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ and from me, the Apostle Paul, right? You never read that. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ and the Archangel Michael. Never, ever, ever, ever. Grace and peace only come from God. So that's a great Trinitarian verse. Grace and peace to you from the Father, from the Spirit, and from the Son. Why are there seven spirits? He's the perfect Holy Spirit. He's infinitely beautiful. So what is this text saying? Jesus exercises his sovereignty and his rule over the world through his spirit, right? That's what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. When Jesus is slain and exalted, what does the rest of the Bible say? When Jesus ascends on high, what does he say in the Gospels again and again and in the book of Acts? When I'm ascended, I'm going to send my spirit. And that's exactly what this is. Jesus is exalted. And what does it say? The seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Jesus, as the exalted one, sends forth his spirit into the world and into our lives. And he strengthens us. So we have hope, right? We have hope because we've been redeemed. But not only that, we have hope because God has given us of his spirit. And now he resides in us. When I, I went to a secular school, a small little secular for university in, uh, in Oregon, and it was a small school, so I had small classes. I think this was a Shakespeare class. My teachers were really, you know, I'm a teacher. We're all weird, right? He was a weird teacher. And, uh, you know, one day, one day he said in class, he goes, um, how, many of you, uh, how many of you believe in the devil? So this class maybe had 25 people in it. And like maybe six or seven of us raised our hand. And then he's like, oh, oh. Um, and he goes, so how many of you believe God lives in you? Well, you know, we're Christians, right? So the Christians raised our hands and then he picked on one. And he says, do you believe God lives in you? And the student goes, yeah. And he goes, that must be amazing. God lives in you. That's got to be amazing, having God living in you. The student goes, yeah, it is. And he said, then this, you know what the professor said? He goes, but I'm a skeptic. I'm a skeptic. And then he said, I'm skeptical even about being skeptical. Typical professor, right? That was the end. But I, what I want to say is, he, he, he reminded me of something that day. Yes. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, right? We have the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget that as Christians. Because Christ died for us, cleansed us of our sins, he sent his Spirit to us. And the Spirit strengthens us. And the Spirit uses us to proclaim the gospel. Which leads to the next point I want to make. The redemption that goes out into the world is because of our prayers. So we see in verse 7 that uh, the scroll is taken. Jesus takes the scroll, the four living beings, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one had a harp and golden bowls 
filled with incense. What are the incense? It's the prayers of the saints. Again, reading apocalyptic literature, we want to slow down and say, so he emphasizes prayer, and we see this in the Old Testament, prayer is compared to incense wafting up to God. And, and, and what's he saying here to us? What, what is he teaching us? He's teaching us that, that, that redemption comes in, in, in part because of the prayers of God's people. Because, because of the, God, God is answering the prayers of his people. And he's redeeming people. The, the work of the Lamb is an answer to the prayer of every person who's ever lived. The, the deepest and most profound longings in your heart uttered in prayer have been fulfilled in the redemption accomplished by the Lamb. Yes, yes, God takes the initiative in saving us, right? God even inspires us to pray, of course. But our, but our prayers do make a difference. Every, every prayer, and John's going to revisit this in chapter 8. I don't have time to look at this today. But every prayer where we say, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, all those prayers are answered finally in God's own wise ways. Those prayers are answered. We cry out to him to save us, and he does. No one who has ever cried out to the Lord for deliverance has ever been forsaken. No one. He's a kind and loving father. He's a good and gracious king. That's what he's saying, right? He's a good. He's a good king. He's a gracious king. He's tender. He's compassionate. He loves us, and our prayers matter, don't they? Don't give up on prayer. Your prayers, they make a difference. You may not see the difference now, right? But they do, they do matter. They're not, they're not mere words. God doesn't always answer the prayers the way we think he will. But ultimately, he's accomplishing his purposes. His kingdom will come. His will shall be done. His purposes will be accomplished. Let's pray boldly and confidently. Next, we see Jesus has purchased some from every tribe. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. You know when they sing a new song, not just because they're tired of old songs. They sing a new song because there's a new act of redemption. And they sang, what are they saying? You are, there's our word, right? You are worthy. There's our word. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why? Because you were slaughtered. Because you're the lamb who was slain. And, and because, it's not just that, and because you purchased people, that, that, that you redeemed people. That's what redeemed means, right? Purchased. You've bought people. You've ransomed people for God. How? By your blood. That's why you're worthy. That's why there's hope, right? Because you purchased people, and you purchased people from every tribe and language, and people, and, and nation. You, that, that gives us great encouragement, doesn't it? You know, 2,000 years later, this has been fulfilled in a remarkable way. Christianity, there's no religion like it. There really isn't, right? If religion's even the best word to use. I don't like that word religion, actually. But it's gone to the ends of the earth. Isn't, isn't it incredible? I've had the privilege of being in a number of 
countries, quite a few countries, but and teaching people from all over the world how delightful and wonderful it is. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, they've been purchased. Some, right? Not every single person, but some from every people group has been saved. That gives us encouragement. It's, it has given missionaries encouragement to go to the hard places. Because we're promised. Some are going to respond. We're not told how many, but some are going to respond from every trum, tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So we have, we have an encouragement. Jesus' death is not in vain. His saving purposes cannot be hindered. We serve, we serve a victorious God, don't we? The Father elects his own The Son purchases them with his blood. Those whom the Father elects are purchased with his blood. And the Spirit applies the saving work to their lives. It's a great Trinitarian work. The electing Father, the purchasing Son, the applying Spirit, that great Trinitarian work of redemption. And we know, we know God's work will not return void. It will be effective. Some will be saved. And praise God, it's happening. It's happening all around the world. And the result, what's the result in verse 10? You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. We are God's kings and priests. That's what Adam and Eve were in the garden, right? Ruling the garden. Ruling the garden for God, mediating God's blessing to the world. Of course, they ultimately fail. But that, that, will, that is restored to us now in Christ. We are God's kings and priests, and it will be fully ours in the new creation that's coming. We will be God's kings and priests ruling this new creation that's coming for God. What will we do in heaven What we do in the new creation, I don't know in detail, but I'll tell you one thing we'll do, we'll be ruling the world for God. It'll be exciting. It'll be thrilling. But we're not told the details. But even now we're God's kings and priests and we'll fulfill the mandate. All of us will fulfill it together with thrilling things to do, more thrilling than anything we've done on earth. We'll be doing that forever and ever. Well, lastly, the last thing I want us to see in this text is Jesus. Jesus is God. Yes, he redeems us because he's man. He redeems us because he spilled his blood. But, but redemption can't come simply from a human being. For, to be redeemed, we need to be redeemed by someone who is fully human and fully divine. And Jesus is both. You know, I, I, I've been studying Revelation a lot lately, and it has just struck me so powerfully that um, it, is a, it is a great book to use for people who doubt whether Jesus is uh, fully God. Over and over in this book, John emphasizes the full divinity of Jesus. Let's look at this right here, verse 11 of chapter 5. Then I looked, and I heard the voice. Remember, we're in this throne room. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. Have you ever been in a crowd 
where it's super exciting. You know, I love sports, and I'll never forget, I forget the exact year, but I, it was the 1980s, and I, I love baseball, and I was at a Dodgers game, and, it was, uh, and there were three games left in the season, and uh, I love the Dodgers. Man, they're doing good this year. And um, so it was, uh, it was two to one in the ninth inning. The cr- there were three games left in the year. There were three games behind the Houston Astros, and they were playing Houston. It was two to one in the ninth, and they were behind. And if they lose the game, the season's over. But in the ninth inning, I don't remember how many outs there were anymore, but there was a guy in second base, and he singled up the middle, and the crowd erupted. It was like a thrilling feeling, you know, if you've been there. It was, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience because it was unexpected, right? You think, oh, they're probably going to strike out and we're going to lose. But, and then in the bottom of the tent, a Dodger hit a homer and they won it. And again, the crowd just went crazy. Well, that's great. That's a great experience. But it doesn't hold a candle to this, right? This, this is an amazing, amazing experience. We have little tastes of it on earth. But here it is, this huge crowd of angels, and they say in the loud voice, what are they saying? Worthy. There it is again. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. Here's the center of history, right? The God is creator, but Christ is redeemer. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. Well, how did chapter 11 end? Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. But now they're saying to Jesus, you are worthy like God is worthy. You're divine. You're, you're the lamb who was slain, but you're also God. You're worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. Now, don't misunderstand this. Don't misunderstand the word receive. You could read the word receive as, oh, we're giving him power and riches, and I guess he doesn't have those, right? Oh, we're giving him the things he doesn't have. No, 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 no. No, that's not what he's saying. We are ascribing to him what he already has. That's a very important distinction, right? We're ascribing to him. He already has all the riches. We're just recognizing that and praising him for that. Here's another thing I want to say. Remember what I said about the number seven being symbolic? Look at this. I think it's significant. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive one power, two riches, three wisdom, fourth strength, fifth honor, sixth glory, seven blessing. John wrote this very carefully. I don't think there's an accident. There's seven there. He deserves all the praise, right? Seven's that perfect number. He deserves all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. And we're not done, right? That's the angels. I heard, verse 13, every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them saying, blessing and honor. Just in case we don't get it, now it's not seven this time, it's not always seven, but blessing and honor and glory and power to the one seated on the throne. That's chapter four. Well, it's chapter five too. That's God, right? The Father, God, and and to the Lamb, right? 
forever and ever. Not, ju- not just the Father, but also the Son together, together. Fully God, the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down, and they worshiped. Let's worship.